Well, good evening, everyone. So good to be with you all on this chilly and rainy evening in May. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Luke that's in the second half of your Bible. Luke chapter 7. It'll be on the screen, and uh, it'll also be in that book that's in that seat back in front of you. I invite you to turn there. As we're getting there, uh, I want to give a brief shout out and explain something you probably would have noticed. First of all, shout out to Tracy who's doing the slides like someone does every week. Hallelujah, yes. Shout out to Maria. I don't know if you know this, but Maria puts together the slides and I uh, am constantly challenging her every week to see how late I can get her all of the slides and see if she'll actually finish them before church. And she wins every time. It's amazing. And I tell you, yes, shout out to her. And the person that designs these lovely things is, of course, Aaron Stone, who does all of the one, yes, clap for Aaron, who does all the wonderful graphics and these kinds of things. Now, as Pastor Kathy reminded us the week after Easter, that Easter is not just a day, Easter is a season. How many of you noticed that the season that preceded Easter, Lent, had a very similar looking image? We don't have an image of it, but I'll give you a hint. It looked a lot like that, but it was black and white. It was Kansas, whereas now in the Easter season, we're in Oz. And so I love how we have this visual reminder in the season of Easter that are following the same kind of titles on our journey toward the cross and the ways in which we find ourselves in the story and the ways in which we deny and together we betray and together we do all of these things toward the cross. Now we walk away from the empty tomb into the new creation launched that Easter morning and it colors in the same life, the same images, but now with the vibrant new life available to us in Jesus. And I love this reminder. This evening, we need this reminder, and I need this reminder. And one of my favorite stories that I'm surprised is not more famous, it's this little story tucked away in Luke's gospel, right there in chapter 7. We're going to look at it. We're going to look at it in all its Good Friday black and white grief and desperation in hopes that by the end of our time tonight, we can go out and see the vibrant color because Jesus showed up and transformed these lives. Let's look in Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read this and then I want to tell it to you again. Verse 11. Soon afterward, that would be after Jesus with a voice and a word, heals a Gentile elite's servant. Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And as he was approaching the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord, by the way, that's the first time in the narrative that Luke tips his hand and calls him the Lord. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. 
Then he went up and he touched the bier. That's a platform. The bier that they were carrying him on and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus then spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. There are two resurrection stories in this one story. And these are the two resurrections I want to highlight this evening. The first is the obvious one that caught your attention. It's the obvious one that caught the attention of a crowd that stopped dead in their tracks and marveled at this man, Jesus. Because the first resurrection is a young man that was raised from death to life only moments after he died and moments before he was to be buried. That's the first resurrection. But the second resurrection, and this is the one that Luke actually really wants you to see, is a resurrection of this widowed mother's life. This is a resurrection of a widow's future that looked bleak. If you've been around church and you've heard the gospel stories of the first century preached and taught, you would know that some of the most vulnerable people in the ancient Near East for thousands of years were widows. James will say pure religion doesn't just talk about it, but pure religion cares for widows and orphans because these are the most vulnerable people in society. Widows couldn't just go to Walmart and become one of those nice, happy greeters at the front entrance. Widows did not have a Texas job corps to just get them gainfully employed. When you're talking about an agrarian society filled with predominantly day laborers, women of a certain age, physically and even socially, could not just go out and make a way for themselves. So if their husband was dead, you're in a little bit of trouble. But if you have a son, he's your backup plan. Because he then can actually take care of you when you're older. So now you begin to see why they desperately waited and longed for and prayed for sons. The whole Old Testament filled with women longing for sons. Because they were the insurance plan and the bank account for these kinds of women. So you got to understand that this woman, this widowed mother has her plan A and her plan B, and there was no plan C, evaporated. She's leading a processional out of the city and toward the grave and toward a hopeless future until Jesus shows up. I believe in a power that can actually literally raise the dead to new life. And I believe that it's not just a power or a force, but is a power and a force within the person of Jesus. I believe 
Because I've seen Jesus literally raise a widow's son. And some of you can bear witness to that. It doesn't happen most of the time or it doesn't happen all the time, but it happens. Enough to where it just dares me to believe that he can do some amazing things in our everyday lives again. I've also seen Jesus resurrect hopeless futures. I've seen with my own eyes and I've heard the stories in downtown Dallas of widowed and addicted and desperate and destitute women. Gather with God's people to hear the stories of one who is strong enough to lift up desperate lives into new life. It doesn't happen all the time and it doesn't happen most of the time, but it happens enough to dare me to believe that if Jesus would show up, he could actually make this dead situation or this dead person alive. I've seen enough to believe that anything is possible when Jesus shows up. This is why I need to tell this story tonight. Because you lovely people in this room and anyone who is listening and myself and my wife and my family need to be reminded that Jesus can even show up when we're all walking toward what we think is the grave and the finality and there is no chance that what we feared is about to happen could be undone. And I need to be reminded. Because where there is death, there is now life. Where there is despair, there is hope. Where there is brokenness, restoration. And if it happened for them, perhaps maybe it can even happen for you. When I've been thinking about this story this week, this phrase came to me. And it's what I want you to walk away with this evening. God promises to restore life to those who hear his voice and who know his touch. I want you to hear that God promises to restore life to those who hear his voice and know his touch. And you say, nope, I am living in it. And I want to remind you that God's promise, if not now, then. It's not a when, it's even a then. It's not just maybe someday. It could be a long way away. But if it doesn't happen now, it will happen then. God's promise is faithful and true. And the promise of Easter, not just for a widow and a young man in name, but the promise of Easter for us today is even when we ourselves breathe our last, I believe that in some sense of the void, we might even hear a voice of the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. And that we, with him, will not experience death as the final word. And so I want to look again at this story and tell this story and remind ourselves that God promises to restore life to those who hear his voice and know his touch. The thing is this, the way that we bury our dead in the modern West is so very different from Jesus' day. 
Unfortunately, many of you, like myself, have been in the hospital room when someone we know and love dies. And it's painful and it's difficult and no one really knows what to do. But that's when, if it happens in a hospital or it happens at home with the healthcare around us, they swoop into action and very delicately but also methodically, they take this loved one and they whisk them away not to be seen again until the funeral service sometime later. But in our story this evening and how it was up until the last 50 or 60 years even, we don't have this detachment. We don't have this outsourcing. What happened presumably in Nain is what happened in Capernaum and Nazareth and Jerusalem and all the other places. And that is that when a person dies within the home or wherever this person is, you have very little time to get this person buried. This is why we see so hastily they try to remove Jesus and prepare his body because when sundown is coming, they can't do anything because it's the Sabbath and they move and act quickly the day of within hours to bury Jesus' body. The same is true here in our story this evening. Imagine with me that you are here in the room with this grieving, widowed mother. And you begin to see the family and the friends and the extended relatives begin to gather around because they had heard word that it was probably about to happen. And then they see, oh, it's happened. And so what they do is some people spring into action and they begin to wrap his body with cloths. And then they start to gather up and someone goes and gets what's called a beer, which is not like a casket, it's more like an open air platform. And they bring it out to the front of the home and they gather this person that has now been wrapped and they lay him delicately and tastefully onto the funeral bier because they're feet away from a mother who has now just lost everything. And so quickly, the crowd begins to gather and some of the young people and men are encouraged to pick up the beer like pallbearers. And there's some real sacrifice here because if you're within the Jewish community, the most kind of unclean you could be without like sinning is to touch a corpse or something on which a corpse lies. So these people, as a great honor and respect to this mother, begin to say, I will do it. I will be unclean to honor you and to honor this young man. Perhaps they knew him growing up. Perhaps they played with him or worked with him. We don't know his age, but we do know that it's a community effort in this village. And so within hours, minutes, or moments, all of a sudden we're up and we're moving from the family home and out to the grave, which is just outside the city. But this is not before they gather the designated or professional mourners. Does that sound crazy to you? There's some funeral homes in South Dallas. One of them was really famous, and they even had a little bit of a um, reality show about it. 
in which they would have these designated mourners that would be sprinkled throughout a church or the funeral home like this, whose one job, get this, is to mourn and wail and scream. Why do you think they would do such a thing? Because it actually might be a little bit better than the way that some people in Anglo and white culture just kind of try to be as quiet as possible. And how hard is that when you actually need to let it all out, some of us? So it's actually a grace and a courtesy that these people begin to filter in throughout the crowd so that they are wailing and carrying on so that this widowed mother who has lost everything can actually react to her losing everything. So she is leading this company of the pallbearers holding the platform, the professional mourners wailing around, filtered in with the extended family and relatives. And as this woman is walking, she knows that behind her is her friends that have the spices because they're going to need to walk out to the city to a small little cave cut out into the hill so that when they lay her son, her only son, onto the platform, they'll begin to put the spices and these kinds of things in order to mask the scent of the decomposition. Because you need to understand that then, for centuries, the burials were not just a one and done, bury them in the ground at Restland. No, they would have to lay the body wrapped and spiced on a platform within the cave. And after some amount of time, the family would actually return to the plot, at which point they would gather up the remains and delicately and tastefully and lovingly transport them into a small box. And the family would leave this person in the box and leave the platform within that small little cave open for the next person. And on and on it goes. So as this woman is walking out from her family home, the one she shared with her husband and her son, she knows she's going to have to walk back that evening and face it alone. And as she's walking out to the same place she would have buried her husband, she had to have been thinking, I felt like it was just yesterday when I was with this man, this son, this one I loved, for us to bury his father. She's thinking, what am I going to eat tonight? Where am I going to work next month? When the crowd scatters, who's going to come back next week? What am I going to do now? Even if we've only experienced this particular pain of death a handful of times in our life, I think we can identify with a widowed mother walking out when we experience that same kind of dread marching toward that thing. Do you have a thing in the next week or month or year? And maybe it's even something that you fear might happen. Or maybe for some of you, it is a thing that is going to happen, whether you want it to or not. But you have this sense of dread that just has that way of covering our present, worrying about the future, or am I the only one? Sometimes, y'all, I get stressed about my month before 
the month calendar is even turned over. Like I even start to look at the summer and I'm like, man, what's going on? This kind of dread, this kind of fear can choke out hope and cloud our vision and make it impossible to see Jesus through our tears, which is why we need to remember the surprise of Easter that reorients and rearranges funerals and turns the blackness into color. It's precisely in this woman's darkest moment that fear and that dread when Jesus shows up. So now we're back. She's leading the funeral. He's behind her on this platform. She's trying not to look back at him. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of her eye, she sees this other group. When they're only just a short distance from the grave, leaving the village, all of a sudden, here comes this person that she only vaguely recognizes. Because, y'all, Nazareth is only a day's walk or a half day's walk away from Nain. Maybe she's heard some stories. Maybe she vaguely recognizes him. But I'll tell you, if you're like me, sometimes we don't see Jesus because we ain't even looking for Jesus. Sometimes we've got so much going on, we can't even imagine that Jesus could even show up or do anything about it. Or am I the only one? Sometimes we know, like me this week, when you're making a procession towards something you fear or something you don't want to do, and you know that you know that you know what your pastors and your friends and your group leaders and everybody says, go sit with Jesus and sit with Jesus in it and allow him to give you the strength and to give you what you need so that you can walk into this. And you know that's what you need to do, and we don't. Because we say, surely he can't do this. But Jesus walks up. And I love how Jesus responds. And I want to spend the next few moments toward the end of this story looking note by note by note at how Jesus, in just a matter of moments, responds to a woman in her darkest hour. And the first thing is that he sees her. And I love this because she might not have seen him, but he saw her. And I need you to know that you think that you are unseen in this community and you think that you are unseen in the grand scheme of the cosmos, know that you are seen And I love that Jesus sees her, but beyond that, he sees her situation. I think that's why Jesus, then it says, is moved to compassion, or as Luke says, his heart went out to her. Do you see that? He sees her in such a way that it moves him to compassion. Let me get real, real. He sees this person beyond the dirty clothes and the sign that he's holding and sees her situation of poverty and desperateness and doesn't say, why can't he just get a job? He sees this woman who has tried and done everything. She had her plan A, she had her plan B, she has her plan C out the window and he doesn't say, why can't they just come here legally? 
He sees her for a person that needs more than a simple cliche or a handout. He sees her as someone who needs a hand up out of the desperate situation in which she's in. And he doesn't judge her. He's moved to compassion. And you need to understand that whatever we do as a community, if we see without seeing and being moved to compassion, we will be a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal making a bunch of noise around those apartments or this city without any life-affirming and life-transforming love. And it doesn't matter their immigration status, and it doesn't matter their bank account, And it doesn't matter their blood alcohol level. And it doesn't matter their housing situation. What matters is that they matter to a Jesus who sees them, would we? Because we could feed some people, but what they need more than food is to be seen. We could clothe some people, but what they need more is to be seen. Because we could fill a bunch of bellies and clothe a lot of children, but the real transformation comes when we use those things to allow us an audience to build relational trust to show them a kind of love that brings the kingdom of earth a little bit more and more every day into heaven. And when Jesus sees us at the end, a lot of people that said a lot of things are going to find themselves sorely mistaken because he says to them, you who didn't just say something, you saw something, it moved you to act. And we say, well, when did we clothe you and feed you and visit you? He said, when you saw them, when you did that to them, when you moved in your heart to compassion, not just to say something, but to do something. This is what it means to follow Jesus' model of response toward these people. Just to backtrack, because y'all are freaking out because I said that stuff about immigration. (laughs) It's not a political thing to me at all. It's not. We're called to love everybody, amen? And some of these people have been trying for 20 years, doing all the right things, and we still need to love them and help them if our government doesn't. Y'all are still freaking out because I'm talking about immigration. Let's backtrack, okay? Now, before Jesus speaks... He sees, and y'all, I am really bad at this. How would it change our relationships? How would it make all the difference in our relationships if we started first by seeing them, by understanding their situation, even if we don't agree with it, would we see it because we are complex, nuanced individuals that are the sum total of our experiences and what's been told about us? And what would it do to change your relationships if you said, first, I see before I try to fix? How would it change when you meet the widows who are upset? We need to see and then be moved to compassion. I'm just going to walk through the rest of this and point out each of these words. And the next thing that we see is Jesus saying something. And what does he say? Did y'all remember what he said? Don't cry. And how many of you said, Jesus, read the room, dude. She just lost everything. I think Jesus is able to say this 
because Jesus sees her, is moved with compassion. And here's the, the real central part. Jesus can do something about it. I think this is bigger than a cliche that we all struggle to say, if you're like me, at visitations or funerals or in the hospital rooms. The only thing I've heard to say is I'm sorry. But even when Amy was at Children's Medical Center and dealing with this on a weekly basis, they even said there's got to be something better than I'm sorry because what's the natural response after you say I'm sorry? It's okay. And Amy and their team are like, but it's not okay. But if y'all think of something better, would you tell me? Because I'm not sure there is. Because I think you can say things like, I'm sorry, with the hint of, I am so sorry that these things tend to keep happening. But when Jesus says, don't cry, he's saying it as, don't cry, because what God promised is about to be realized in the present and the one who will say, I will wipe away every tear from every eye, is about to do that in the present tense so she didn't have to wait to the end. And what happens then is as soon as he says, don't cry, he does the unthinkable. I told you earlier that those pallbearers were unclean because they touched the platform. Jesus, what does he do? And what does the crowd do? They gasp, they stop dead in their tracks because you could do the laundry list of what they thought was going to happen next and you would not expect Jesus to speak again and say, young man, get up. If they thought he was callous when he said don't cry, they think now he's crazy. And I love what Luke writes because it's not just get up, as in sit up, or get up and move off of this platform. He says, young man, I say to you, rise. And he does. And this is so powerful. Because then the crowd loses their minds and was praising God and is standing in awe because they went from tears pouring down their face to gasping and amazement, and here's what they do. They begin to process this unexplained, unprovoked, surprising situation. There was no, hey, could you do something about this? He just does it. There was no, hey, I didn't even have to ask you. Sometimes he just does it. And so the only way they can process this is, hey, remember the story of Elijah. There was a widow, and her son died, and here's the thing is that Elijah in 1 Kings 17, he was doing all this stuff. He was begging God, and he was speaking, and then he would lay on the body. He was doing all of this stuff, but then remember what happened? The son rose up, and then his homeboy Elisha, who came after Elijah in 2 Kings, there was another widow's son, a son that he said, hey, you didn't think you'd have one. Here he is. Well, guess what? He dies. This widow's like, well, that sucks because I thought that God had promised me this. So Elijah comes back, and just like his homeboy Elijah, Elisha is laying on this son. He's speaking. He's doing all this. The only framework they can process this with is the kinds of prophets from hundreds of years ago. He just might be one of those that we've been waiting for all of this time. But here's what's powerful. Here's what you need to hear. 
Here's why this is in Luke chapter 7 after the story of the centurion when Jesus spoke a word and the centurion's servant was healed. He speaks a word and the son is raised. No gesticulating, no begging God, just some movement out of the divine love and power of Holy Trinity. He is able to speak just like the one who spoke the universe into being, who spoke our world into being. Jesus speaks and gives this widow's word world back to her. This is why this is the resurrection that he wants us to see. Because what does he do next? He gave him back to his mother. All of us have something we've lost. All of us have something that is desperate and dead on a plank. And we're waiting and hoping and begging and daring to believe that Jesus who saw, who empathized, who spoke, who went out into this situation, who touched the thing that no one else would touch, and who gave the world back to this woman who had just hours and minutes before lost everything, Would we dare to believe that Jesus still sees you, is still moved in his heart toward compassion to you, who still is speaking to you if you would listen, who is still going to you if you would see him out of the corner of your eye, who is still touching that pain, that bitterness, that brokenness, that tumor, and is still giving you everything, if not now, then. I want to close by returning one last time to this story. But I want N.T. Wright, who has reflected on it, to get the final word. He writes, and this is our invitation. Go through the scene again. But this time, instead of it being a funeral procession in a small first century Galilean town, Make it that moment you most dread in this next week or next year. Maybe it's something you know is going to happen, like a traumatic move of house or job. Or maybe it's something you are always afraid of, a sudden accident or illness, a tragedy or scandal. Now come into the middle of the scene, if you can, in prayer. Feel its sorrow and its frustration, its bitterness and its anger. But then watch. As Jesus comes to join you in the middle of it, take time in prayer and let him approach, speak, touch, command. He may not say what you expect. He may not do what you want. But if his presence comes to be with you there, that is what you most need. Once he is in the middle of it all with you, you will be able to come through it. Because, friends, I believe God promises to restore life to those who hear His voice and know His touch. Where are you longing to see life? Where do you need Him to interrupt the funeral dirge and procession to come in the unexpected way even if it's just to be with you in it, would you dare to believe that we are alive 
and that life is possible even when all we know is death. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be reminded of a power that is greater than our fear, of a power that was at work in Jesus when you raised him from the dead that is still at work in us. And that power in the person of Jesus who still walks among us speaking and touching and acting and moving in the unexpected places. Would we seek him and see him and would he bring our death to life? Through the strong name of Jesus we pray, amen. Merciful God, who is more than we can ever imagine, give us a wider vision of the world. Give us a broader view of justice. Give us dreams of peace that are not defined by boundaries of geography or race or religion or by the limitations of worldly structures and systems. Open our eyes and our ears that wherever we go, we may hear your voice calling us by name, calling us to serve, calling us to share, calling us to praise and calling us to get up and walk in new life. May we hear your voice and never give up on the promise of your kingdom, where the world is transformed, where death is defeated, and where those with nothing suddenly find everything restored in you so that we can enjoy the new life you give us in all its fullness. Amen. Go in peace.